0: You want people on the team that are willing to stay and grind it out, have that stick with itness, and can learn from the periods of failure. And in fact, that's where the greatest skills are built, and importantly, the greatest relationships are built, both with your customers and with your colleagues that lead to career advancement and career success.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I like to start these things off by reading your background back to you, and you can tell me what I'm missing and fill in the blanks for me. Okay, this will be interesting. You got your degree from San Diego State. Then you were in sales at Nortel Networks for about six years. Then you went on to be the managing director for telecom at ScienceCent, which you spent about two years doing and was acquired by SBI about a year after you left. You then became a sales director at Scale Eight for about a year, which was acquired by Intel about a year after you left. You then went on to be the VP and client director for almost Four years at Gartner and then VP of Sales for North American Consulting for about a year? I was at Gartner for four years in a couple of roles, yeah. Okay, cool. Then you were the VP of Sales at IPIQ? I don't even know how to pronounce it. IPIQ, yeah. Okay, perfect. For less than a year and then? That was a start down. Start down. Yeah, I've been at one of those. Those are fun. And then you're at Salesforce. You spent 10 years at Salesforce. You started as the RVP for enterprise sales, then the RVP for corporate sales. You did three years doing the RVP of corporate sales gig, then the AVP of commercial sales, four years doing that. SVP of commercial sales, about a year and a half doing that. And then SVP of global sales for Pardot for six months, which was an acquisition, I believe at the time. Yeah, it was post-acquisition. Okay, Yeah. cool. And then you were the SVP for the marketing cloud for five months, all told at Salesforce for 10 years. You then went on to be the chief revenue officer at Tanium for about almost two years. And as of about a year ago, you are the chief revenue officer at Box. How bad did I butcher that, Mark?
0: I mean, that's right off my LinkedIn page. It seems like more jobs than I've had, but... (laughs) <laughs> it's on the interweb, so it must be true.
1: I want to talk to you about a bunch of stuff today. Definitely want to talk to you about Box. I want to get into top-down selling. What does that mean? I want to talk about how Box is enabling companies to achieve success working from home. I want to talk about you know what's next. Before I do, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. One of the things that first struck me about your experience was that at Salesforce, You took on a bunch of different functions within the revenue organization. And what I mean by that is you took on kind of a corporate sales leadership and enterprise sales leadership, commercial sales, global sales. And so, again, tell me if I'm wrong, but it was different segments of the market that Salesforce would sell into. Is that right or is that wrong?
0: It's correct. My first year there was in the enterprise sales organization. And then I moved over to what was called corporate sales, which is now called commercial sales there. But that team sells to both mid-market and small businesses. And I remember when I made that change, it was one of the early conversations I had with Mark Benioff. He said, "We need more people that move throughout the organization so we can learn from these different segments. And there's a lot of value in selling across those segments, especially when you're selling software. that." sells across segments, that sort of democratization of software. These cloud companies that sell from SMB to large enterprise, there's different selling motions across segments. And it's really valuable for sales leaders to become familiar with the way each of those segments operate because there are similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And so Salesforce really gave me the opportunity to sell across all segments. And with the Pardot role, I had a brief period with a global role, which was really critical experience for me to have before leaving to have the CR role at Tanium and, and now at Box.
1: I'm curious when you would make the jump from one to the other. So let's just say you went from mid-market or commercial to global and enterprise is the way that you led different in each of those functions. And I guess maybe I ask because the people that you're managing need to be led in a different way to maximize their output. Does that question make sense?
0: Well, it does. It does. So, my leadership style did change dramatically, I think, in the period I was at Salesforce. And it was probably less about me moving segments and moving roles. And it was more about the people that I worked for. My sales leadership style is a mosaic of a lot of people that I've stolen things from over the years. And so, I think when I got to Salesforce, I was 37 and I maybe. Thought that I was a more capable sales leader than I found out I was. And I really think of sales leaders of having three buckets of skills. They have selling skills, just straight selling skills or rainmaker skills. You can put sales leaders in front of customers and they are generally very good. And you know, usually you don't move up in the hierarchy unless you can close deals and then manage customer relationships. And then usually sales leaders have strong people skills, they're talent magnets, they can motivate and inspire teams. And then the third bucket is strategy and operations so everything with regard to routes to market channel customer segmentation you know designing comp plans all those sorts of things and in my experience usually sales leaders are only really good at one or two of those and the way that it typically plays out is if they're excellent operationally you probably would not want to put them in front of customers or if they're just magical in front of customers they often need to be paired with an operator to kind of hold together that side of the business and so Going to Salesforce, I think I was pretty good on the selling side and I think I was pretty good on the people side, having been a sales leader for a number of years at that point and, and really in all prior parts of my life, whether it was in sports or, or other endeavors, I generally landed myself in leadership positions, but I was not a very good operator and not a good operator because I hadn't really worked for a very well-run sales organization before and I was really fortunate to work for some really talented people. Salesforce that really taught me the way to best operate, particularly a SaaS sales organization. Everything around segmentation, cadence, pipeline forecast, territory carving, I mean, that place kind of rewrote a lot of the rule books that had been written in the client-server era. And many, many SaaS companies have copied and edited and learned from that model. And I certainly benefited from 10 years there and working for really, really great people.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that. I realized that same thing. Even recently on point three around strategy and operations, I was getting a bunch of questions on sales ops and comp plan questions. And I had an oh crap moment where I actually reached out to some sales ops folks in my network asking if I could pay them as consultants for me to just get better. Cause I realized I am so far away from where I need to be on the operational expertise. Do you think that's fairly common on the strategy and operation side to have deficiencies because you have a counterpart on the sales operation side that you've always leaned really heavily on to be kind of the tip of the spear and all the comp plans and territory designs and that kind of thing where you could complement those skills on the people and selling side?
0: Yeah, and I do and always had a strong partner. Our sales ops leader, Yasser here at Box, is world-class. I can't do what he does operationally, but as a sales leader, you have to be able to speak the same language, have an appreciation for that discipline, have an aptitude around it so that he and I can collaborate together. And likewise, he has to have an understanding of what my job is and how to be a sales leader. He doesn't have to be a sales leader, but we have to have that kind of a partnership. But the problem is, it's the most efficient set of skills in sales leaders because there's a lot of really poorly run sales organizations out there. And so we have a generation of sales leaders out there that haven't worked for well-run sales organizations. They move up hierarchy, and then they're expected to lead their organizations with excellence from an operational standpoint. And if they're smart people, they go figure it out, but you know, recreating the wheel is not smart. It's better to go work in a world-class organization and learn all of those playbooks and frameworks and then evolve them as the new business sees fit. When I was in my interview cycle before I came to Box, you know, I talked to a number of different companies and every executive recruiter, every venture capitalist, and every hiring you know leader, every CEO I spoke to, generally they were making a change with their sales leader because they had someone that was a rainmaker and that the team loved, but was not strong operationally and they were having trouble with scale and creating more predictability and repeatability in their selling motion. And it's kind of the thing that most companies are looking for.
1: It's funny, there's a guy, Jim Herbold, I don't know if you know Jim, but he was the first VP of sales at Box. He came from, it was 600K, and he took it to 200 million of VRR. I'll introduce you guys. And Yeah, you gotta make it rain to do that. He was making it rain. I was introduced to him the same way I was introduced to you, which was through Mamoon. And Jim, he told a story about how at the time, He was definitely making it rain and he had the people skills, but he also was relatively operationally excellent. And they kept trying to hire people above him with those operational skills. And he came on the podcast. And so we talked about this and he said, I kept putting a plan together, an operational plan. And I just said, look, tell me if anyone has a better plan. And if they do, I am more than supportive for you to hire above me. And until that $200 million mark, they didn't have that person. And then finally it got to the point where that wasn't the expertise that Jim even wanted to have taking that business from where you are today, I suppose, to where you're gonna take it. And so I think it's interesting. So if you were to look back now and you were like right coming out of San Diego State and you had those three pillars as a part of your framework, selling skills as a rainmaker, people skills as a talent magnet, and strategy and operations. How would you prioritize where you focus on building those skills?
0: I think being on the right team is where I would have told my young self to focus. I put myself through college and I got my first sales job selling peanuts at Cal Berkeley Memorial Stadium when I was 11. And so I've been working for a long time and, you know, people from a young age have told me, you'd be great in sales. And I had sales jobs in college. I waited tables. I've been interacting with people and honing a lot of those people skills for quite a long time. So by the time that I graduated, and by the way, like now it's hard to get into San Diego State. But when I went there, you had to be able to fog a butter knife to get in. Uh, So (laughs) coming out of San Diego State, people were knocking on our doors for jobs. And it's just a very, very different world now. But what I wish someone had told me, and maybe I would have listened, is the most important thing is to be on a good team. You know, if you're on a really good team with really bright people, then you will learn from them. But if you want to do the lone wolf approach because you think you can do everything, you might be successful and many people are. But, you know, for me, really the greatest periods of success and the greatest periods of personal and professional growth have been when I've been surrounded by people that I can learn from. And I had a really tremendous period on that front when I was a client, which was, you know, one of these e-business consulting firms in the late 90s that was a collection of some of the brightest people I've ever worked for, but it ended up being quite brief because it melted down in the dot-com bust. And then the experience at Salesforce was pretty unbelievable, personally, professionally, everything in my life got better for being there. And then all of that kind of comes together in a place like Box, where I get to put all those pieces together. So I think it's about team, you know, the operational and strategy bucket. I certainly learned a tremendous amount at Salesforce, but it was because of the place and the people. That's why I learned it. But I think more importantly, if you contrast today's world compared to the one I graduated into in the early '90s, you know, I really think we're kind of in a renaissance of sales now. I came from. A couple generations of salespeople. My grandfather and my father were furniture salespeople, and neither of them were as successful as maybe they wanted to be. And it never seemed like a career path that I wanted to pursue. And it was kind of frowned upon. You know, when people think of sales, the first thing that they think of is car salesman. That's if you ask people what career do you think of when you hear the word sales. But we're in this renaissance in sales now where when I went into sales in the 90s, it was, you know, people like me from state schools. Today at Box, we have sellers on our team that went to Harvard. We have sellers on our team that went to MIT, that went to Stanford. Now, high-tech sales is such a highly complex role that it requires a really broad skill set. And I have, now that I'm 50, I have a lot of friends that have kids that are getting out of college. And a lot of them ask me, you know, how can my daughter, can you help her get an SDR job? It's just such a different job now. And the interesting thing in my time in startups and in public companies working with board members and investors is the selling aspect of a company is what the board and investors are most interested in. That's what they want to talk most about is how do we drive growth. But historically, our business schools don't teach much about sales. And you know, when I was born in 1970, I did this during my sabbatical last year. I looked into the syllabi at Harvard University, the business school. In 1970, not a single class in the MBA program at Harvard with the word sales in it. In 1993, when I graduated, not a single class in the Harvard Business School with the word sales in it. This is, And we're teaching our future business leaders there. Right now at Harvard Business School, you can take a class taught by a guy like me called high-tech sales. So that's like a totally different world. And the career is thought of differently. The earning potential is way greater. The complexity of the role is way different. You know, you can make a lot of money. You can travel the world. You can learn a tremendous amount. It's just a very different environment than it was, I think, 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we talk about that on this show. The current VP of sales at Mixpanel, he was the former GM of analytics on the Cleveland Indians. Wow. He was a Harvard MBA. And he's a total data nerd, and I think I say that in like the nicest way possible. He'd probably take that as a compliment, and yeah. he understands data extremely, extremely well.
0: Yeah, and you hear about former IBankers and former management consultant, sales leadership roles, and that was just not a thing twenty years ago.
1: Yep, Jane Kim, Circle CI came from IBanking, and then one of our other guests from Tableau, she was employee seven at Tableau, took it past IPO. Kelly Wright, she now teaches a course at University of Washington about go-to-market.
0: Yeah, Kelly's awesome. She was my customer when she was at Tableau and I was at Salesforce. She's a great leader.
1: Oh, that's awesome. And so I think the point that you're making, which certainly resonates, is that why is something that's so important to a business to the point where that's what the boards want to talk about almost every time not being talked about enough and really taught at a young age? And I think the bar has changed a little bit where... Salespeople have to be more technical. They have to be more smart. They have to understand the product better. And I think it's because sales has changed a little bit where it's much more solutions-oriented. And so in order to help solve a customer's challenge, you need to understand what their challenge is in a really nuanced way. And so you can't just throw around your bits and bytes, features and functionalities and see what sticks against the wall. You actually have to understand your customer's challenges and then work backwards to figure out if your solution is the right one. That's not an easy thing to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's typical for older people to talk about how much easier people have it today. I actually think selling's harder today than when I started out. And if you read the Challenger Sale book, you know the research says that today's B2B buyers make up their decision 80% of the way before they land at your website or before they talk to one of your SDRs, one of your sellers. And that's really different than the way that it used to be. And when I started selling technology in the early 90s, If I got into a deal first, then I had the opportunity to kind of frame the buying decision and it was feature benefit selling. And if I framed the buying decision and I was the best at demoing, then I would win. But that's not the way that it is now. The the customers do so much research on their own. They have a problem. They prescribe what they think is the right solution. They go out to bid for that solution. And oftentimes they're not particularly interested in solutions that are very different than the one that they've self-prescribed. And that means it's very, very hard for a seller to differentiate and win, to change the way they're thinking about the problem, to probe more deeply into what their real root problems are, and to reframe the buying decision. That's a very, very sophisticated, consultative, high executive presence, no lone wolfing. You got to do it as a team. It's a very, very complex role today and way, way more competitive and way, way harder.
1: I could talk about this for the full show, but for the sake of time, <laughs> you are at Box now. Box, I think everybody listening probably knows about the company. It's just under a $3 billion market cap doing plus or minus $800 million of annual revenue. Could you talk us through your decision-making process? How and why did you end up at Box? And maybe a little bit more about the composition of your organization today. I think it's a good framework for us to dive into things
0: yeah, so as you said, you know, we're on that path to a billion dollar SaaS company. We're in a space we call cloud content management. You know, if you think about the way knowledge workers use tools like Salesforce and Workday and Slack, and of course, we're all on Zoom all the time these days. But a big part of what people do when they're working and they're collaborating is they're working with content. They're working with files, they're working with documents and spreadsheets. And if you think across the major software categories, in enterprise, they pretty much have all moved to the cloud. So whether it's CRM or ERP or human capital management, expense management, you go through the big buckets and they've all kind of moved to the cloud. No one's buying on-prem software anymore in those categories. But the way that people manage content in a lot of cases is still the same as it was 20 years ago. So it's not a matter of if it will move, it's a matter of when. And we think that we are really best positioned to along with our partners at Slack and Zoom and Okta and others to really change the way that people work. And by giving them a very differentiated solution for securely sharing both internally and externally their content, and we integrate into all of the other apps that they use so that you can have a single content layer across your apps whether you're in Salesforce or Workday or ServiceNow or Slack, Zoom, one single content layer across those. So we're about a 2,000-person company, global in nature, public. The reason why I decided to go to Box is after I left Tanium, I took off six months for the first time in 26 years. And I really have gone, you know, job to job really since high school. I've worked all through high school and all through college. And I know it's feeling sorry for me. I've been on vacation and stuff. It's been, I'm okay. But it was the first time that I've really taken off time without a job. You know, I've been on lots of vacations where, My phone, my BlackBerry, and later my phone had been blown up with emails the whole time. It was the first time that I had a break where I didn't have a lot of email coming in and I could really spend time with my family and reflect upon my career and my wants and needs for the future and to document what my values are and what's important to me. And I was able to do that, not in a rush around a decision, but taking my time. And so I took six months to... Document what's important to me and my family and what my values are. And then I had a rubric with which to evaluate a number of different opportunities. And when looking at it through the lens of my values, Fox really ended up being kind of the perfect place for me. And a year later, you know, there hasn't been a day that I've ever been. It's just been an incredibly rewarding experience because what I've found is that the most important thing for me is culture. And it's interesting that I'm on a CRO panel with a bunch of leaders of some of the greatest software companies on earth. And in the middle of the pandemic, we had our first one of these meetings and it was a two hour meeting and we went around the horn and talked about what was on top of all of our minds. And these sales leaders on this panel are people I look up to, you know, I aspire to have careers like theirs. And I showed up with a pen and paper planning on stealing as many of ideas as I could from all of them about leading a sales organization. And interestingly, And it's really heightened in times like these. Every single one of them said that culture is the most important thing that they're focused on right now. I thought we were talking about compensation and verticalization and roots market and customer segmentation and all this stuff that we spend so much time on. And leader after leader, 100% of them were really focused on culture. It's so, so important because there's really high peaks and deep and long valleys in sales. And it's important that you have a culture that keeps everyone up. Or as Daniel Pink, the author of To Sell as Human," says, to stay buoyant. And that's a really important thing. And doing that inside of a company that has a really strong culture, it sure makes it easier and more fun. And when you spend more time with the people that you work with than you do with your family and your friends, it's better work with really great people. And we're very fortunate at Box. to have 2,000 of them.
1: Absolutely. Do you think that culture... I, mean, I think culture matters to everyone, but in the context of the revenue organization, do you think there's something to be said around so much of success in this job comes from bringing your A game, your enthusiasm, and your passion every day? And I think that's, you know, especially this day and age, really hard to recreate. Do you feel like that's why it was so top of mind for these revenue leaders?
0: Yeah, I think it's important that people feel that they're trusted. I think that. There's a little bit of a false narrative in sales that sellers are coin-operated. I've always been almost offended by that. You know, certainly sellers do want to earn, but I found over the years that sellers crave recognition as much and often more than they crave the financial rewards. And so it's important to have a culture that is very customer-centric, that's really oriented around customers and customer success and building trusted relationships with customers and that has to be authentic, but it also has to be one that rewards and trusts and recognizes the whole team. And so I think that it's really critical. And when people don't feel like they are appreciated and recognized and treated fairly and aren't in you know abusive environments where they're getting beat downs, the beatings will stop when results mm-hmm. improve, that kind of a culture of a sales organization, you generally don't hold on to people for very long.
1: Totally. I want to read a quote here from Aaron, your CEO. You make your product as easy as possible to adopt, but you make it so a large enterprise can fully adopt it across their entire company. That's the future of selling. End users adopt it, then at a level past some usage threshold, the enterprise standardizes. So I wanted to kind of use that quote to dovetail into the go-to-market orientation of Box. He also said that in this talk that he gave, 99% 99% of the Fortune 100 uses it. So clearly doing some large enterprise selling. Your background and experience has lent itself well to this kind of notion of top-down enterprise sales. I guess my question is, and I've had you know Slack and Twilio and New Relic and some of these other bottoms-up motions that's become very vogue, if you will, this day and age. How do you think about the effectiveness of top-down selling, if you will, Do you even think it is top-down selling based on Aaron's quote? And what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses that you guys might have to think about as you go from 800 million to the next couple billion?
0: Yeah, so we do both, right? We don't do the developer bottoms up kind of motion like a new relic. That's definitely not our model. But we do sell across segments, which I think is the opening part of his quote is related to. So we are very much focused on kind of the global 1,000 organizations. But really the company from the very beginning has believed in having a consumer orientation to software as well. And really the kind of lightning in a bottle is when you can have that blend of a really easy to use consumer style app that users will on their own adopt and they don't have to go through massive training programs while meeting the needs. And in our world, it's very security and compliance oriented. So how do we meet the security and compliance requirements of the federal government and banks on Wall Street while having something easy to use that my father can use in his furniture store? And when you figure that out, then you have this magical combination that allows you to sell across segments because really small businesses want all the same security and compliance features, but they need to be easy to use because they don't have massive IT departments. And large enterprises want the richness of all those features, but they also want something easy to use because they've been using clunky, terrible, hard-to-use large enterprise client-server software for years, and they want the ease of use that they've become used to with tools like Zoom and Slack and Box, Salesforce, etc.
1: How much do you think relationships matter in this world? And what I mean by that is when you focus on the Fortune 1000... I think there's an aura around the large enterprise rep that's been working that account across several companies and has key relationships we talk about that a bit on this show i just love your perspective on in the global 1000 focus if we keep it within those that kind of framework how much do you think relationships matter to penetrate and also be successful and expand into those accounts
0: yeah it's critically important and something i'm very passionate about so I think if you go to the start of the fiscal year, and it seems that most SaaS companies have a January year ends. So when February and March, there's a gazillion sales kickoffs from every SaaS company around. And in every one of them this year, there was a keynote presentation on being a trusted advisor. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? I would agree. Everyone's talking about being a trusted advisor. And it's almost become a hollow term because everyone says it. But I really like to break the term down into the two root words. Really trust being the most important one advisor being secondary i learned so many things from working at mark benioff's company but he even today continues to talk about that we're in a trust revolution so the first word in trusted advisor trust is absolutely critical and if you can't establish trust personally and professionally with your buyer then you're doomed if you can become a trusted advisor and that to me is like an aspirational place because for us as a software vendor you know we're a 2000 person company under a billion in revenue so for us to be in an advisory position with the world's largest and most successful companies is something to aspire to and we may never get there i really like that to think of that as being like the top of the hill that we may never reach and that's okay but if we don't get the trust part first then we're cooked and in today's world you know when i first started at salesforce 13 years ago a lot of the customers we were selling to were buying their first saas app or their second saas app But if you look at the Okta report that they do annually, and they have a really unique position that they're in because they can really see the way that customers are using SaaS products because they see the logins. I think the report from last year was that the average enterprise, and they cut the line at 2,000 employees, has something like 156 SaaS applications. So buyers around the globe, particularly in the enterprise space, have a tremendous amount of SaaS fatigue. And if you are one of a million SaaS vendors, and you don't have a relationship and you don't establish trust, you're not going to do any business. And you know, I get inquiries probably 10 a day from a different SaaS company that's going to help me with my pipeline. I mean, how do you filter through that noise? There's 20 people a day that have some new AI pipeline generating engine that I need in order for me to fulfill my goals. Now, good luck.
1: Do you think in order to build that trust, you have to be face to face? You
0: do not. Companies around the world are proving that this is an interpersonal dynamic that we are in right now. And it's not the same. You know, being in person is better, but this is pretty darn good. And, you know, we've proven in this period that we can continue to grow. I think in part, our solution is really kind of purpose built for remote work. And, you know, for us, We sent our 2,000 people home. We didn't know for how long, but we all picked up our Macs and went home and we have no client server software on our machines, So it was seamless for us all to go home. And that's what our tool set helps our customers do. So, you know, we have a lot of customers that they're three, five, 10 years into their cloud journey. And when we check in with them on how they're doing, the transition has been pretty smooth from a tooling and an IT perspective because of the cloud stack that they've been building for a number of years. When I talk to customers that have had a rough time, that's because maybe they didn't make all those investments or they were delayed and they're breaking their VPNs and tunneling into client server software in their data centers.
1: The New York Stock Exchange named Box, the number one organization of seven who are fueling the world's growing remote workforce. And I think things like Zoom, things like Box are certainly enabling trust to be built in a way that probably wasn't possible before. So I guess personally for you, you started a year ago, probably about half of that time has been spent remote, but do you think you've been able to build the requisite trust that you need internally? Like you show up to a new organization, you come from the security world and previously Salesforce, and half of that time is spent at home now. And so much of our muscle memory is built around that trust happening through osmosis with people in an office and team events and all these things and building that culture in person. Do you think that's been a challenge for you? Do you think you've gained any advantages or scale not doing that in person at this point?
0: Yeah, I mean, the answer is, yeah, I think I've failed. I can always do better at that. We have a good-sized team, and I can't connect one-on-one with everyone as much as I would like. There is a part of a job like mine, which is, you know, you're on the road, like you, I go to London and I meet with a bunch of customers and I go to the office and we have an all-hands meeting and I take a group of people out for lunch and we go get coffee or we go out and get dinner. And a big part of those interactions as a sales leader, you know, moving around through your different offices is about building those relationships. And we've had to find ways of making those personal connections with people over Zoom. And so I think it's been decent but it's just not the same it's not the same kind of an interaction we're a very transparent and highly communicative organization so i think we've done a really good job of having regular and transparent communications at, at a company level you know since the company was founded aaron and the founders have hosted a lunch every friday that's broadcast to the whole company with A, Q&A and it's extremely collaborative I've been having lots of kind of ask me any things at the team level and across the whole sales organization. I've been doing all that I can to make myself available and to communicate with people and hear how they're doing, give people extra time off, doing anything that we can to help people through this challenging time, both our boxers, employees, and customers. But yeah, I think I failed. I think I could do a whole lot better. I've gotten some feedback that we've done a great job, but for every person that's saying we're doing a great job on that front, there's probably people that we haven't touched.
1: Absolutely. And this notion of failure, since you brought it up, I want to talk about it a little bit. And the reason that I want to talk about this a little bit more is because I think you made a comment like, you know, when you were on the revenue, the CRO panel, and you said, these are the people that I idolize. And it's funny, because a lot of my audience, you are that person that they idolize, you are the person that they want to aspire and achieve to become. And I think they look at your background, and they look at this astronomical kind of career growth and trajectory. And it's hard to humanize that because it's just so incredible. And so I think failure is a good avenue to be able to humanize folks like you. And so one of the things that we mentioned before the show started was Bill Gates says that people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Can you expand on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, failure has been a very consistent thing in my career (laughs) and and you have to fail a lot in order to succeed. And it's actually where the best lessons come from. And I think that in our early correspondence, you brought up the term grit, which is the number one thing that I look for in people I hire. And, you know, for all of my career, I would always hear people talk about sales DNA. You know, they would interview someone and they would say, oh, she has sales DNA. And I never felt comfortable with that term because I like things that I can measure and I can test for. And until I discovered Angela Duckworth's research and her book, on grit which i think i watched her ted talk i don't know, like six or seven years ago Mm -hmm. and since then i think i have bought a few thousand copies of her book i discovered her through an article that i read about pete carroll when he first went to the seahawks and he's a john wooden disciple and i'm a big believer in john wooden's teachings about leadership and about success and excellence so i was reading this article about pete carroll and he was talking about angela duckworth which led me to her and led me to the grit book and she defines grit, as I'm sure you know, since you're using the term, as the passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And my favorite word, which I think she made up, is stick with itness. Mm-hmm. And people that are gritty, they just don't have any quit in them. And so I think the thing about me that has proven to be true over decades is that I just don't really have any quit in me. I'm not the most successful. I've worked with people that are smarter, harder working, more charisma. You know, all sorts of things, but I just don't really have any quit. And I like to be around people that are like that. And you know, when you interview people and you look at their resumes or you look in LinkedIn and they've had like five one-year jobs, those are people that lack grit. And you know, I mentioned earlier that I worked for a start down. When you're in tech, if you go work for small companies, you're gonna have some jobs that don't last that long because failure rates are pretty high in startups. But if you have like five one-year jobs in a row, then that's generally a sign that you go somewhere and things are hard and you leave. And those are people that you really don't want in a sales organization. You want people in a sales organization that are going to be able to grind through when times are hard, because hard times are part of this career. There's different economic cycles. There's different competitive pressures. Right now, we're not a super high growth company. And we do lose people. They leave to go to higher growth companies. And there's always a a hotter seeming company in the valley. But when I was at Salesforce growing at 30%, we also lost people regularly because... We were growing like crazy and they felt like their territories were being cut too often. So people leave environments, whether they're growing fast or they're growing slow or they're growing at medium pace, they always leave. You want people on the team that are willing to stay and grind it out, have that stick with itness, and can learn from the periods of failure. And in fact, that's where the greatest skills are built. And importantly, the greatest relationships are built, both with your customers and with your colleagues that lead to career advancement and career success. When you jump around a lot, it's really hard to build those trusted relationships with your coworkers that lead to career advancement and, and opportunities to take on jobs that are maybe a stretch for you where you can grow into them. And you know, when you're growing, you're stretching your muscles. I'm in a growth job right now. I feel confident in the job, but I'm stretched by the job. There's no doubt about it. And I was stretched by the job that I had before this one. And I was stretched by the job that I had before that one. I like being in jobs that force me to be my best and to learn new things and do more that's all connected to you're going to have failure on the way but that's where the growth comes
1: i just couldn't agree more with pretty much everything you just said angela duckworth's book is the inspiration for the name of the podcast and even hearing you talk about pete carroll he's a big inspiration of mine just in the way that he talks about competing so pete carroll's big thing is that He doesn't talk about winning or losing. In fact, in practice and in games, there is no output orientation towards the process that they're trying to develop with their players. It's just about competing. I think his belief that he instills in his team is this notion that if you focus on the process, the output will work itself out. And in that process, there's certainly going to be things that are hard and easy and everything in between. But ultimately, if you keep sticking with trying to refine that process and getting a little bit better, then you're competing. And you're doing the best job competing. And then if you look at the output over the long term, the Seahawks have a reputation for being a tough out. That is their reputation. You can't get them out of the playoffs. Nobody wants to play them. Even when they don't have a great team, they are a tough out because they compete every single time. And even when they're down big or whatever it is, they just constantly grind it out. And so everything you said completely resonates.
0: Yeah. And he learned a lot of that from John Wooden and. It's another one of these sort of half-truths in the selling world, along with the coin-operated thing. It's interesting that in sales is, no career has a scoreboard to a greater extent than sales. And I mean, I worked at Salesforce where we sold a tool that dashboarded and leaderboards. But the truth of the matter is, that's not actually, in my experience, what really motivates people. What motivates people is reaching John Wooden's definition of success, which is performing at the peak of your given competency. And so if you think about an individual deal, most sellers hopefully at some period in their career will get a Bluebird. You know, a really big deal that they do almost nothing on and it just lands on their lap. I hope for everyone listening that you have a whole lot of Bluebirds. They're wonderful. But when you win a Bluebird, it doesn't feel that great. And people are high-fiving you and they're congratulating you and maybe you're gonna make a lot of money on it. But the hollow feeling that you have when you close a Bluebird is the opposite of that definition of success because you got the result, but you didn't do the best of what you were capable. And the other version of that is that we've all lost deals where we know we did our best work. And while you're disappointed in the loss, you can feel okay about it because you know you did your very best. And that is also that Pete Carroll and John Wooden definition of success that you can lose and you're going to lose in sales. You're going to win and you're going to lose. The key is to every single day, do the very best of what you're capable. That's how you create a really satisfying and long-lasting career. And the economic results will take care of themselves.
1: The other thing that you had mentioned going through that was the one-year person, if you will, going you know five consecutive companies over five years. I think there is a bit of a folklore that you can grow stale being somewhere for too long. And so, hey, don't be at this company for too long. Otherwise, you'll stop growing. And I feel like sometimes it's used as an excuse to not actually develop all of the things that you really could going through that growth and change. And a lot of the time the skills that you learn are just how to deal with change, how to deal with failure, how to deal with your territory being chopped up three times. Maybe not necessarily the actual skills, which certainly I think you do learn, but sometimes it's just that stick with itness. Like I do think that we, unfortunately, especially in my generation, have lost a little bit of that. And I'm certainly guilty of this as well, because we're encouraged to keep changing, keep finding the next shiny object. And it dilutes the stick withedness or grit that I think is developed by doing 10 years at Salesforce and having all the things that I'm sure were frustrating for you and tough and made you want to leave, but ultimately were so important to your development.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely ranges. There's extremes, right? There's five jobs in five years and then there's staying at a big old tech company for 30.
1: Mm.
0: Neither one of those look great to me as an employer. So I don't mind some failure. I don't mind some short stints, but I do like to see tenure. So I don't need to see 30 years or 20 years or even 15, but five, six, seven, eight, 10, that's good. That's stick with itness. And I want to see that, that repeated success in one environment. So I think I think it's really about, you know, what the individual story is. But you know, five jobs in five years is problematic. And I don't think there's a credible story that I didn't want grass to grow around my feet and I had to move around so I could learn. I don't think that's a credible story when you have five jobs in five years.
1: Yep, that's fair. I think your job and your charter, if I was asking Aaron, is to go double, triple, quadruple the business over the next 10 years. And how do you get it from $800 to $3 billion? And there's some interesting revenue levers that I think you could pull. I'd love to hear what you think that looks like from here as you've saturated 99% of the Fortune 100. Some things that I've seen, you know, in 2017, you launched a product called KeySafe and then you introduced Box Zones, And you've really, I think, put a greater emphasis on some of these maybe specialized compliance tools. Aaron Levy, in your most recent earnings report, said that Box Shield is currently selling better than any product the company has ever launched. So again, here I go, kind of leading the witness, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on some of those growth levers.
0: Yeah. So, We are not creating a new business model at Box. We're a cloud computing company, and so we are about land, adopt, and expand. That's what our business model is. So we want to attract customers across industries, geographies, segments, and we want to build trust with them. And we want them to get started with Box, maybe with a departmental deployment, or maybe they'll start enterprise-wide. You know, Every buyer starts in a different way. And then our sales team and our customer success teams, we want to make that customer wildly successful with their deployment of Box. And then we want to expand our relationship with them based on their success, really get to all the knowledge workers within the enterprise. So we want to do seed expansion to go wall to wall within the enterprise. And then at the same time, we want to add on additional products like Shield that you mentioned that we launched last year, which is an incredible security product that is in fact our best add-on product in company history. And then we have a number of other add-on products around governance and others. And then a number of our customers that buy multiple add-on products prefer to buy a suite, which we also launched last year, which is sort of a bundle set of offerings for customers that don't want to buy add-ons individually. So it's about land. It's about making them wildly successful with our consulting and customer success teams, going for seed expansion, and then upgrading them to additional products and suites. Really, that's what our model is. And then in addition to that, it's, of course, the renewal motion. So we you know, have a pretty big installed base now at $700 million in revenue, and it's critical that we renew every single customer. And that all starts with that trusted relationship and making them successful. So to the extent that we can do those things every day, make the customers wildly successful, renew them, come out with great products, we will continue to have a great business. So that's what we're all about.
1: Awesome. I have one more growth lever for you that I wanted to ask about, and then we can wrap this thing. Aaron gave a talk in 2014. It's excellent. Building for the Enterprise is a Stanford University talk, and it goes through kind of the foundation and choosing between enterprise and consumer. And long story short, he said 99% of the Fortune 100 are our customers. The only one that's not is Microsoft. Microsoft is, uh, and this was in 2014, (laughs) mind you. Okay. And now, again, in 2017, Box partnered with Microsoft. On a relatively ambitious plan to integrate AI and machine learning capabilities into Box and build upon mm-hmm. Azure's kind of server technology. And so you hear the tone of his comment, you know, in 2014. And now it feels like maybe five, six years later, it could be a potential growth lever. I know IBM and a few others are a part of this mix around maybe channel partners or alliances that may be ways to insert yourself more broadly within the customer base.
0: Yeah, so obviously, I can't comment on specific customer relationships, but from a go-to-market standpoint, on our website, and Microsoft has posted and tweeted about this, Office 365 has been one of Microsoft's most successful enterprise products that they've ever launched, especially over these six months in pandemic, you've seen the numbers on Teams adoption. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable the number of users that they have on those platforms. And they're very much in our trade market. You know, Large enterprise companies of all sizes around the world are Microsoft customers. And we have a deep integration with that product suite. And that's a critical relationship for us to have because you know, listen, I, I built my career using Microsoft tools. I've spent a lot of time in Excel and in PowerPoint. But when you wanna share and collaborate those documents, it can be a little clunky. And what a lot of end users ended up doing is resorting to email. We have a very elegant solution that is complementary to the O365 environment that allows those users to use the tools that they love, but to be able to secure and share and collaborate with that content internally and externally in a seamless and user-friendly way. And also importantly, to integrate that content layer into other tools that they're using, because while many companies are Microsoft shops, they also use tools like Salesforce and they use ServiceNow and they use Workday. And we seamlessly integrate content across those platforms, not just within the Office 365 environment. So that's an important relationship for us.
1: Yep. I will wrap it up there. I am already on borrowed time. All right. If someone hears this interview and wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do so? If they wanna come work for you, work with Box, be a part of this next generation of growth?
0: Yeah, I think for people like me, they get so many emails. Emailing me is probably pretty unlikely to get through because all sorts of spam filters, and it's just pretty tough. You have to have a really good subject line to get me to, to get me to bite because I get so many emails and we're all swipe deleting stuff on our phones. So I do read LinkedIn notes for some reason. I think it's just because I don't get a lot of them. So I do read them. I don't respond to a ton, but that's probably the best way to get me because I look at it like once a week. And if it's something that's compelling, or of interest personally and professionally, I'll probably respond. So that's probably
1: best. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thanks for having me. Have a great one.
1: Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at KleinerPerkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.